Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Robert S. Thornblum lived from March 15, 1938 to June 3, 2020. In those 82 years, he lived a most incredible, impactful life to thousands of people, and his legacy and life's work continues on. He was an engineer, he was a leader, he was a servant, and he was, and remains, a legend. So who was this man? Bob was born at Karawa in the Belgian Congo to missionary parents. He learned Mbaka, a local tribal language, before he learned English, and that language profoundly impacted his work and relationships for the better throughout his life. His Congolese friends called him Bobby, and the name stuck. He grew up helping his dad, who was a doctor and pastor, and his mom, who was a nurse, during his teenage years. Then in high school, he helped fix trucks and anything else that was broken. He came to the U.S. for college and got a degree in mechanical engineering. He married Jan in 1960 and returned to Congo to run the technical and mechanical aspects of a mission station with schools, homes, and hospitals. He wanted to support the work of the doctors, nurses, pastors, and teachers so they could do their jobs and focus versus having to make a repair on a vehicle after a long day in surgery like his father had done. There are a few key achievements that established his legacy in Congo. First was Mbudi. This was a spring about two miles from the Karawa Mission Station. In 1966, he figured out how to design a water wheel, reverse the differential of an abandoned truck to get the gearing right, and have it pump water to a cistern at the top of a hill to allow the water to be gravity fed to the entire mission station, schools, and hospital. 54 years later, Booty is still in operation. His next major accomplishment was a hydroelectric dam to provide 24-hour electricity. This was over 15 years in the making from his original vision to engineering to fundraising to construction to get Zulu River harnessed, thus providing Karawa with round-the-clock electricity. I remember as a child swimming in the Zulu River and playing on the waterfalls and hearing him talk about the plan for a dam. Being a kid, it was hard to imagine this, but sure enough, in 1984, the electricity was turned on and continues to provide juice to the homes, schools, and hospital at Karawa. Third, he helped import and train operators of portable sawmills. These were able to be carried into the forest, right to the tree that had been felled, and could cut lumber right on the spot. Laborers would then hand carry the lumber out to the nearest road for loading onto trucks for transport and sale. Most of the buildings in the region are built from the lumber from these sawmills. And fourthly, he helped with hydroelectric mills. This allowed corn, manioc, and other grains to be ground by machine versus by hand, taking work that took hours and making it minutes. Many of these machines are still in operation. So no doubt, Bob's technological legacy is incredible. Water, electricity, lumber, and food prep, all key items for improving life in the heart of Africa. And these accomplishments will continue to help people for years to come. In August 2020, a memorial was held 
for Bob's passing. Due to the COVID pandemic, it was presented on YouTube and was viewed from England to Congo to the US and even other countries. I saw 210 screens were tuned in at one point. So conceivably, three to 400 pairs of eyes were part of this service. Wow, that's amazing. But there was much more to Bob than his technological genius and execution. In today's episode is to explore what made Bob tick, to understand why he was so great and what made him a legend and what made him special and what made him such a huge impact on people besides these amazing mechanical feats. I first met Bob at the age of four. I grew up around Bob and he was a part of my life into my early 20s. His son, Mark, was a classmate of mine all through grade school up through high school. So I was around Bob a lot during my youth. Furthermore, in 1994, Bob and Jan led a team with World Relief Incorporated to Goma Zaire, where the Rwanda genocide refugees were, to help with unaccompanied children. I went to Goma in 1994 and served with Bob and Jan's team for three weeks working in the refugee camps. To bring a perspective of a child that grew up around Bob and then as an adult worked alongside Bob as a contemporary, I've asked Paul Noren to share some thoughts from these angles. Paul was born in Congo in the late 1950s, grew up there, and has been working in Congo since finishing college. As a child, Paul looked up to Bob differently than to other adults. So I was looking up to him and wondering what kind of a great guy this, this guy really was. And then as we got to know him, found out that he, he really was a great guy at least to me, I mean, it was, and I think to a lot of other people as well. So he took me in kind of like, like a little brother in a lot of ways. And that was, that was great. I knew that Bob had grown up in Congo and also knowing what kind of Baka he spoke. That was completely impressive to me and kind of pushed me to start learning Banza and then Bandi a little bit. So that's kind of why I was looking at Bob as yeah, different. He was like one of us, but the grandfather of all missionary kids, you know, and the one that you really wanted to, to kind of be like, if you could be. He was cool. We um, looked at him and the older missionaries, but he was one from our group, but he was the first one. So, so one day we're on our way back to Bado Mission from school. And at this time, I'm about 12 years old, something like that. And he's coming up to Loco to go buffalo hunting. And he had, uh, I think the Linquist boys were going. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. I, oh, I wish I could go buffalo hunting. I, I didn't say it, you know, but I was probably hanging around puppy-faced. And they were, they were kind of getting ready. I'm just standing there watching. And, and everyone else had gone someplace. And he was there working. And a crow came flying by and landed in a tree. He says, hey, Paul, here. He gives me the shotgun. He says, go blast that crow. And so I went and I shot the crow. And sure enough, it was the first time I ever shot a shotgun. And it flops out of the tree and someone took it and went and ate it. But I look at that later on and I think he made my day. He made my week. He made my month by doing that because he was sensitive to, here's a kid who would really like to go. He's not going with us. He's not invited. He's not old enough really to go on this trip. Maybe he is, but we already got too many people. I can't take him along. Here. Let's, let's, let's do something to help him out here, you know? And it was the best thing he could have possibly done for me at that age, at that, at that time. And he was, he was good at doing that at different times over and over. As an adult, Paul saw another dimension of Bob. 
you always look at something and say, how can you make this better? Uh, you do something, it works, and you say, uh, what kind of improvement can we do here? And he was always looking for improvements of different kinds. Whenever we had trouble of some kind, like, he would, there'd be like a, a social problem. And sometimes I was involved in things and he would say, Paul, he wouldn't come and say, this was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. But no, 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 no. He would say, Paul, how can we make this better? That would be his approach. And so he would come alongside someone and be willing to give some advice, but he would be asking you, what do you think you need to do to help this? And then he'd be willing to work with you on it. But it was, uh, a lot of times it was a reality check. Paul shares from his perspective where Bob had the greatest impact. The greatest impact that Bob had is going to be in the lives of the people that he worked with, not necessarily the projects that he was actually working on. Those are all good and they're valuable. And to this day, they're helping us. But the people that he worked with, the lives of those people and the people that surrounded those people. In other words, uh, the village is, is a large community. And the whole community was benefiting in various ways, culturally with Bob as, as one of them. So people saw him as one of them. And even after his death now, people have uh, talked to me and said, the main thing about Bob is that he actually became one of us. And we can't say that about anybody else. I asked Paul how to describe Bob in his own words. When I think about Bob, I think about the fact that he really was as much of a Congolese as any foreigner could ever possibly be. The fact that he was born there, he grew up there, that he spoke Mbaka so well, that he knew the culture so well. And I think that's what the local people probably think too. I, I see Bob as that. I also see an extremely dynamic person who had a passion to help in any way he possibly could. So I see him as being very dynamic, a powerful presence, and also very much uh, Baka Congolese. Bob certainly has left a legacy in Africa with the water pump, the Zulu Dam, the sawmills, and the like. But Paul shows another perspective of Bob's legacy to the Congolese. In Congo, he is a legend among the Congolese people there in the northwest of the country, of course. And that's where his enduring legacy is going to be. People are going to remember him for generations, actually, because of that. Bob was a visionary and tenacious. Paul elaborates with some examples. Yes, Bob was always looking at things to see what he could do to improve stuff. And he had, he had the big picture was to help people in any way that he possibly could. He had two big things on his agenda kind of there on the screen. Uh, physical help, which included hospital type of work, medical work, let's say, and the development type of work. And in that, he was very creative in how to try to get water systems going. He, he really worked at, the, at that at different hospitals, Bocata, Carowa, uh, Wasolo, uh, to provide water for these hospitals, as well as lights, electricity. And so that was part of his vision for the work. And then for, for development work, he, he was just all over the place on that one. His, his mind was going nonstop. 
I think he was, uh, he was clever. He was, his brain was always going. He was looking at things. Once he got going on something, he was, he was very much into doing that. And he's just extremely, extremely creative and he was thinking all the time. The impact of his technology continues to this day. Two of the big projects that he accomplished quite well, although he wanted to do a lot more, was with the sawmills and the what we would call hydromechanical uh, sites. Uh, some of them had electric, electrical components too, running a, a little generator, but they were mostly set up so that they could grind food. Uh, that would be corn in particular, manioc, and save women lots of time pounding by hand. And so those villages that got one of those, the sites became kind of a collection place for people to, to come and uh, sit around while they waited for their corn to dry because they had to spread it out so it was dry enough so that they could grind it well. The women would come and dry the corn and they'd be sitting there talking. It was a great socializing place. And so these centers were important that way as well as saving labor in terms of pounding corn all day long provide the food that they need for their, their families. Bob had a heart for people and had a servant leader approach in all he did. I actually forgot to mention this as one of the, the second big vision was for evangelism throughout the entire area. He'd be out there in the middle of the night trying to get something in order to get somebody home, to get somebody out, to keep things running so that they could do their work. And just the, the example of having to run out in the middle of the night to go get somebody, he didn't say, ah, oh, just let them sit until morning. I'm, he, he would go out whenever they came. He would go get them. And it didn't seem like there was any time of night or any kind of weather, rain, whatever. He was out there. He was doing it. He was willing to inconvenience himself over and over again to help other people. And he did this with, with the Congolese. He did this with the missionaries. I saw it people coming to his place all the time. He knew that he was a legend by the end. He knew that, no question. But that's one of those things that, that happens. And, and a legend, he, in his case, he would say, well, yeah, I happen to be the only white guy in the area who speaks Mbaka like that and you know, grew up among the Mbaka in that way. So, but he wouldn't think it was anything particularly special in that sense. And yet he is very, very special. Paul talked about Bob being, quote, one of us, unquote, in the minds and the eyes of the Congolese people. This was so true in that he spoke their local language, had grown up in their culture, considered himself Mbaka, and had lived his entire life with these people. Though many people working in Africa were tremendously impactful, there is no doubt that Bob Thornblum was special, unique, and looked upon differently. So how did the Congolese regard Bob? a.k.a. Bobby, in comparison to the other men and women working alongside the Congolese. I've asked Timothy Mambo, a Congolese electrical engineer that worked with Bob for many years, even running the garage and technology services, to share a few thoughts on what Bob meant to the local people from his perspective. The first time when I came back from the state, Bob and I worked for one year. And one morning, when I came to work, Bob called me in his office and said, okay, Mambo, this office is yours. Now, do everything just like I, I don't exist. 
And if you have a question, you know where the house is and you're going to go to see me there and uh, ask me the question. But I'm not going to come to the office anymore because this office belongs to you. So I started to work. And the first time I started asking him a lot of questions. And then, uh, you know, he taught me a lot of things. Being in Congo, in a country where uh, it's hard to find a hardware store and all the equipment that you need to do the work was very hard for us to work there. And we worked more using what we call fiasco engineering because uh, when things break, we don't know where we would find the part. And then we start, we, we start turning our brain until we find a, a kind of solution. That's why we have been running things all the time and uh, things were going well. The other thing, he didn't only teach me in, uh, in engineering because in engineering, we did a lot of things. We, I uh, since I'm a solar engineer, I installed a lot of so uh, solar panels and uh, refrigerators and a lot of things. And uh, also we, we did a lot of different things. We built houses, we built roads, we built uh, water system, we pumped water to the village. When something breaks, since you are the only engineer there, there's nothing else you can do. What you can do is just to go and try something. And he was helping us, showing us what to do. When it breaks down, we don't know how to solve it. Then uh, right away, he, he gives us the answer. We also did what we call the village technology. And uh, also, uh, he, uh, he taught me how to, to manage. When the missionaries evacuated in 1991 due to the Civil War, Mamba was left with an incredible responsibility. Bob and Jan had taught him excellent management skills to run the operation. He gave me a lot of training in management. And Jan, Jan Thornblom too, she was my mother. And uh, she taught me the accounting and the, all those things. You know, uh, in 1991, when the missionaries left, all the mission. Uh, from Gemena all the way to Bumba was in my hand. I was managing it. And when uh, Dr. Raj and Eileen Thorpe were the first one to come, when they came, they saw that everything was still good. And they said they were. In, and he, he went to the church that time and he cried. He said, uh, I need to confess to you Congolese. I thought that you weren't, you weren't mature enough to manage things. But uh, when I came back, you did better than what you were doing. So I'm, I'm, I'm just would like to apologize to you because uh, in the name of all the missionaries. So that means that uh, Bob gave me very, very good training. And uh, that training helped the whole 
community found also that zoo was still running well or the water system were running well he taught me how to manage the workers and you know i got a very 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 good training and i i really miss bob the work that he has taught taught me is going to keep going on he taught me one principle he said the mambo you know what you can do with one stone you need to kill two or three birds and that principle really helped me because if i go somewhere else i try to do lot of things at the same time and make them really successful and it was because of what he did I then asked Timothy how Bobby's impact to the Congolese differed from that of other missionaries and how his impact continues even today. When people see Bob, they see solution, solution to every problem that they have. He was somebody who wanted to help do everything for the good of the people. That's why everybody comes to him when they come to him sometimes they don't have anything to say to him but uh, since they're happy with him they just come they want to see him they want to stand by him that's what uh, he was looking like bobby was a congolese he was born and grew up there and he was seeing things through the eyes of Congolese rather than seeing through the eyes of American. When he goes out to people, they don't see the white skin. They just see, just see a Congolese. When he talks beside you, there's no accent when he talks in Mbaka. So anything that the Congolese eat, Bob will eat. It meant that everybody well, had confidence in him. And what he said, people would trust him right away. He was seeing the people through the Congolese eyes and do the missionary work that time. And that's why he had more pact on people. I know that those who have worked with him, with the knowledge that he taught us, we're going to keep working and try to help people through the knowledge that he gave us. And that we won't forget it. But a dimension about Bob that you are learning about from Paul and Timothy is Bob's heart and compassion for everyone. It was during the war when uh, Jean-Pierre came, sons, when he came, he, was, uh, he took over all that area. And uh, Bob called me when I was in Bangui. He asked me, is it safe for him to come? I said, yes, you can come. There's no problem. And he came, he was in Bangui. And then his heart, his compassion for the people meant that even during the war, he can come all the way to Karawa, all the way to Congo to see the people and see how they're doing. When he sees people suffering and whatever he has, he gives out to help the people. And Bob has done a lot of things to help people. 
Bob was truly special in the eyes of the Congolese due to his understanding of the people, his language skills, and his heart to help. As Timothy mentioned, everyone wanted Bobby for something. Even if they didn't have a situation needing resolution, people wanted an audience with him. He was respected and needed by so many, and everyone wanted to be with him. In this episode, we've seen a perspective from three different angles. First, Paul Noren shared about how he looked up to Bob as a child, how Bob made him as a kid feel. Then, Paul became an adult and worked alongside Bob for many years. Here again, Bob was unique, special, and very impactful in Paul's life. So that is the second perspective of who Bob was. And thirdly, we heard from a Congolese contemporary, Timothy Mambo, a fellow engineer who replaced Bob and Jan's role when the evacuation occurred, and he was able to share the Congolese perspective of how he looked at Bob. Timothy's examples gave us great insight as to how so many fellow Congolese respected, admired, and looked to Bobby as he shared his life with them in Congo over his lifetime. So this is part one of a two-part episode on the life of Bob Thornbloom. In the next episode, we will hear from Mark Thornbloom, Bob's son, who grew up in Bob's shadow and later in life as an adult, worked alongside his father on technology projects in Congo and other parts in Africa. All this continued up until a few years before Bob's passing. So how did Bob's family deal with a father and husband that was always in demand? How was it growing up in the shadow of this man that was always working, always helping, always creating, and always needed by someone? Mark shares this unique perspective in part two of Bob Thornbloom's life. I hope you check it out to hear more about this amazing man and his wife, Jan, as well as a conclusion to Bob's incredible life. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninga Nangai, Tikala Malamu. My friends, stay well.